0: Please in the Bibles to John chapter nineteen. John chapter nineteen, our text this morning will be verses seventeen through twenty-two. This is the time in which our Lord is being crucified; that He is. Hanging on the cross, that he is dying for the sins of his people. You know, when it comes to the description of the crucifixion, the Gospels really don't give a whole lot of information. They really don't describe the agony that Christ is enduring as he is on the cross. Probably one of the most vivid descriptions of the crucifixion itself is in Psalm 22 that is very graphic uh, concerning the the agony and and the the pain and the suffering that Christ himself endured but but the gospel writers really don't go into those details and granted uh, they're anticipating perhaps the readers having an understanding of the Old Testament passages, uh, having an understanding of crucifixion itself uh, what a horrific death that that was and so perhaps by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it wasn't needed really to go into that. And in one sense, we can see perhaps maybe why our Lord did not describe all of that within these passages of John or in the other gospels, because sometimes, as we've talked about before in the past couple of weeks, we don't want to just focus on necessarily the the suffering of Christ uh, for the purpose of, of having pity about what he is enduring now, granted, understanding the horrific death itself does move the hearts of God's people to appreciate even more so what Christ has endured. Absolutely. But at the same time, we do not want to use that, as we've talked about before. We don't want to be sentimental and use sentimentalism in the sense of trying to get people to come to Christ based on the agony and the suffering of Christ. We want them to hear the gospel. We don't want to just tug at their heartstrings and perhaps... Uh, maybe that's why John doesn't write about that. He does give us some, some very interesting statements here that, that do take us back to the Old Testament. Take us back to the prophecies of the Old Testament to give us a greater understanding of things. Because when you really look at it, the Gospels do not give us that, that really detailed theological implications of what is happening here. You usually get that in the writings of Paul. Paul. Paul will bring out a lot of the the implications of it, of of Christ being our propitiation, of our satisfaction, uh, having redemption through his blood. All of that sort of language is really given to us in the more theological writings of Paul. The Gospels don't really tell us exactly those things, but there are things that John alludes to here that take us back to those very truths. this This is really what John has been leading us to. From the very start of his gospel and all the things that he has said, all the things that he has described about the life of Christ and the sayings of Christ, everything is converging here. It is all leading to this. This is where all human history converges, right here. Because of this particular act, this one event, this is what determines the destinies of all mankind. Here. This is a pivotal moment in human history. All the prophecies lead here. All the ceremonial law foreshadowed everything, it leads here. The very promise of God in the very beginning, even to Adam and Eve, of the one who would come and redeem the woman, this is, this is here. It's all right here. It's all leading to this moment. Everything leads to this event. It is here. That your salvation and my salvation was accomplished. This is where Christ himself saves his people. People not just from any one particular ethnicity or nationality. But people from all tribes, tongues, peoples and nations. Our Lord Jesus in this act is saving. Not because of of the, the human afflictions that he is that he is enduring as far as all of this pain and suffering that he is enduring at the hands of man but because of something else that John alludes to in this passage this is what accomplishes our redemption and so today as we work our way through this passage and then in the weeks to come this is something that that is given to us to reflect upon to stand in awe of that's That's the beauty of that song that we were just singing, come stand in awe of our great Savior, our great King, our great Lord, who is lifted up from the earth and who bears the sins of his people. This day, indeed, let us stand in awe of Christ. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We will read verses 17 to 22 of the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible word of the living God. And let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. Verse 17. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the Place of a Skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written. I have written. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you that it is here that we can behold our God, that we can behold our great Savior, our great Lord, as he gives his life as a ransom for his people. Oh, Father, move mightily within our hearts and apply this passage to us. Give us a greater adoration And thankfulness for all that Christ has done. May you be glorified in our hearts this day. As we work our way through this passage. We pray, Father, indeed that the Spirit of God would do a mighty work in us. We cannot do anything left to ourselves, but we need him every moment. Father, we pray that he would move greatly in us. Lest the preaching of your word may accomplish all you desire. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. As I said, there's not a lot of detailed implications or theological implications or, or any of that that, that Paul would, would give us perhaps a little bit more clearly. But there are indeed things here that, that John is bringing out to the, to the remembrance of the readers to bring our minds focused to focus them back in on what the scriptures have said concerning Christ, what they have foreshadowed concerning him, that we can have a greater understanding of, of what is happening here. This isn't just a case in which a man is just being taken to be crucified. That happened to numerous men, numerous people. John wants to give us something else. Now, throughout this whole event uh, being described in John chapter 19, there are a number of passages that John is alluding to. There are a number of, of passages that are implied by the things that he is saying. That, that are taking us back. And we're going to go over a few of them uh, this morning. As Pilate has given in to the will of the crowds. They have threatened to, to write to Caesar. And they have, they have threatened basically uh, His position. And so, as a result of this, Pilate has given in, and Pilate is going to hand him over to be crucified. And we had talked about how the first scourging that Jesus had received was probably either the lighter scourging or or the the next the medium one we could say that he hadn't had the the most severe scourging yet because Pilate was still trying to to release him that last scourging the 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 most severe of them all were. Was was what was done to men to prepare them for crucifixion. And a lot of times men would die just as a result of the beating. Pilate wasn't there. Not not there yet. He was still trying to release Jesus. But in the time in which he says to the crowds, shall I crucify your king? And they cry out, we have no king but Caesar. The text tells us that he handed him over to them to be crucified. And it is here most likely that Jesus received the worst of all the scourging. In which what we understand to be the cat of nine tails would have been used against him. They had the long leather straps with pieces of bone and metal. And that is it would be brought across him to sink into the skin and to tear the skin away from the body. And as bad as that is just by itself. Then he's going to be crucified thereafter. So perhaps after this beating, we read that they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is in Hebrew, Golgotha. Now, the other gospel writers tell us that Jesus is going to be helped along the way by Simon of Cyrene. John doesn't tell us that. There's actually things here that John tells us about that the other gospel writers do not. And perhaps that John, being an eyewitness, would have more to say concerning some of these things. But he makes, uh, he makes a purposeful statement here to say that Jesus went out bearing his own cross. Why would he say that? Now, a lot of times the, the cross that's being... Uh, Carried here. Sometimes it would be a full cross. In the shape of what we understand it. A lot of times it was the, the horizontal beam. Will be strapped to the person. Which weighed about 75 to 100 pounds. They would be led the longest way out of the city. In order that everybody would see. And that the inscription that Pilate had written. Would be carried out in front of him. That people would know the charge that was, labeled, that was hurled against him. But John makes... This statement that he went out bearing his own cross. Now, as you're reading a number of theologians, you don't want to go too far with things. But at the same time, you have John that is being purposeful here to to bring back to the remembrance of his readers certain things in order to, to demonstrate what is happening here. And as we read that Jesus is bearing his own cross for many, it brings back to their minds Of Isaac. Abraham and Isaac. As Abraham and Isaac are going to go worship. When the Lord had commanded Abraham to slay his son Isaac. Isaac had the wood on him. And as they are going. He said we have the wood. We have the the fire. Where's, where's, Where's the sacrifice? Abraham said the Lord will provide. And so they get to the place in which Abraham is going to sacrifice his son. He binds him. He puts him on the altar. And just as he raises his hand to slay his son, the Lord stops him. And then he sees a ram caught in the thicket. And that in itself was a demonstration of of what God is going to do to his son. He's not going to withhold the judgment that's going to come. He's not going to withhold his son dying as he held Abraham from doing. In metaphorical language, you could say the knife was not stopped. It was brought down upon Christ. But you see something in that, that in that whole ordeal with Isaac being a foreshadow or a type of Christ and how the Lord had provided a sacrifice, it would be a sacrifice unto him. That's what John is conveying to us, reminding us of these truths, that the one who is bearing his own cross is the sacrifice. That was foreshadowed in Isaac. He's going to bear his own cross. He's going to the place of the skull. You know, there's a few different ideas of this. It was a place outside the city, obviously, but perhaps the hillside itself looked like a, a skull, is the why it's called that. Hebrew it's called Gagotha. In Latin, it's called Calvary. We understand these words. But this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who is bearing his own cross, who is going to the place of his own execution in order to die for the sins of his people, to die in place of others, just as the ram caught in the thicket died in the place of Isaac. He says here, not only is jesus bearing his own cross picturing the sacrifice but he's crucified with two other men one on either side and jesus in between you know that's one detail that john gives us that the others don't that jesus was in between the two men now this is very important because again the readers of scripture will be brought to to memory of What the scripture tells us in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, in Isaiah 53, verse 12, we read, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressions. He is bringing back to the remembrance of his readers these particular truths and these particular prophecies concerning the one who is to come. He's taking them back. This is not only the one who was the sacrifice that was foreshadowed with Isaac. This is the one who is the suffering servant of Isaiah. And understanding that and going back to these passages gives us a greater understanding of what is happening that John isn't coming right out and saying. Listen to these these passages here of Isaiah 53 that are so familiar to us. He says, Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for this generation, who considered? That he was cut off out of the land of living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. This is what John is bringing to the minds of his readers, making this particular comment that we wouldn't miss it. Of the fact of Jesus being hung on the cross with two other men, just as the prophecies had foretold. It takes us back to the suffering servant passages that we would understand what's happening. He is justifying the many by offering himself as a guilt offering. He's bearing their iniquities. He's bearing their shame. He's bearing their grief. This is what he is doing. He is the substitute for his people. Just as Isaiah says. And actually he uses that language there. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. Putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. You know, if you go back and you read Psalm 22 and the Lord or through that Psalm through David, he says, I am a worm and not a man. There, that's a specific kind of worm that he's referring to there. It's a worm that you would crush and, and you would use its blood in order to make a red dye. And Jesus is likening himself to that kind of a worm. And the Lord is saying here, it pleased him to crush him. Why? Because as a result of the anguish of his soul, as a result of him giving his body on behalf of others and the Lord crushing him, it's going to be his blood that's going to wipe away the sins of his people. He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. This is. Showing us that substitutionary work of Christ as to what he is accomplishing right now. The one who knew no sin, the one who had committed no violence, the one who was innocent and was proven to be innocent even by his enemies is the one who is lifted up from the earth. And it is him that the Lord is crushing on behalf of his people. That's what he's accomplishing here. He is the substitute of all his people dying in their place and not just dying a death. That's uh, that's the thing we have to understand. He's not just dying on behalf of his people. There is punishment that is being rendered against him on behalf of his people. It's not him just dying, but it is what is occurring that leads to his death. That the very pains, you could say it this way as theologians have throughout the centuries. The very pains of death, or the pains of hell rather. That the unbelieving would endure. The suffering and the agony under the mighty hand of the wrathful God. Is what Christ himself is enduring in these moments as he is hanging on the cross. That's what he's enduring. The very pains and suffering of hell. And he is doing it. As a substitute on behalf of his people. So it is with these things that John is bringing back to our our remembrance. Certain certain passages in the Old Testament itself. Because this is what he is going after here. He's not giving a whole lot of description about the crucifixion itself. Which we understand is indeed a horrific death. Many Roman. Roman. Historians like Tacitus and Cicero, all of these guys talk about the, how, how horrific this death is, that you would, either be, you would either die by suffocation or you would die because of being exposed to the elements, blood loss. It is indeed a horrific death. That is, we understand the Romans had perfected, even though it was started by the Persians. You would be taken to the place of your execution. They would drive the nails into your hands. You know, if you, it's something that we had learned as we were in Bible college. If you just put your finger here toward the lower part of your hand, you see where some bones come together. And that would be one of the places in particular that they would drive the nail so that when they drove the nail in, they didn't drive it in here. They drove it in in this area right here. Because the scripture would tell us, as John does, that no bone of his was broken. And a lot of times in in the movies we see how Jesus' feet were crossed over and there would be a nail in between. And what they've seen in archaeology, that's not how it is. A lot of times their feet would be turned to the side and they would go in right behind the Achilles tendon. So that not a bone of his would be broken. And you would have to pull yourself up in order to breathe to take a breath, agonizing death, horrific death. But John's point is to say that the one that is hanging there is the one who is fulfilling the scriptures, who is the sacrifice that was foretold, who is the suffering servant. But he goes on. He says that Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross and it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, king of the Jews. Now you could look back in many passages, a lot of the Psalms and the Messianic, the Messianic Psalms that spoke of, of the king, how the Lord has established his king. Uh, his king is the son that, that whom you kiss the son lest he become angry. He is the one who fulfills exactly what the Lord had promised Through David, the greater son of Solomon who would come. All of that. But this is something interesting here that he says. Therefore, many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin and in Greek. Now, This was a place near the city. And so the implication there is that it was outside the city. He wasn't crucified in the city. He was crucified outside the city. And again, this is something that we just may pass by, but it's something that the scriptures would give us good, some, some deep descriptions on when it comes to the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus chapter 16, we read this in verse 24. He shall bathe his body with water. This is the this is the high priest on the day of atonement. He shall bathe his body with water in a holy place and put on his clothes and come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. Then he shall offer up and smoke the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The one who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water. Then afterwards shall come into the camp. But the bull of the sin offering... And the goat of the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be taken outside the camp and they shall burn their hides, their flesh and their refuse in the fire. The day of atonement that the high priest would go in and make atonement on behalf of all the people of Israel. The sin offering itself, after it was offered up, was to be taken outside of the camp. It was to be discarded outside the camp. The scapegoat, as the sins of the people will be transferred to the scapegoat, was to be sent out of the camp. The writer of Hebrews alludes to this. And he says, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12, Therefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Even the writer of Hebrews is alluding to this very thing in order to bring back, to focus us in. This is the one who is the scapegoat. This is the one to whom the sins of his people were transferred to him, was imputed to him. And that he suffered outside the camp. He suffered outside the camp, and by his one offering, he has forever perfected those that the Father has given to him. He's the scapegoat. He is the great sin offering. He is the sin offering that that occurred once for all time, the one who bore our sins, bore the sins of his people. There are so many things that we can look at here to see what John is bringing about. But it all comes back down to this the things that he's not saying clearly, he is bringing back to the remembrance of his readers to go back and see that these are fulfillments of what was written beforehand. This is the one that the scriptures all pointed to the one who would die in the place of his people. The one who would be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. The one who would suffer so greatly on the cross in Psalm 22. This is the one who would be pierced through his hands and his feet according to Zechariah. This is the one who is the substitute who dies on behalf of the people of God. In order to propitiate or to satisfy the justice of God against his people. That's what he's doing. He's satisfying the justice of his father. And those descriptions that are given to us there, that, it, that the one who does this is, is the king. This isn't just anyone that the Lord has sent to do this. This is God himself in human flesh, who is the great king who is carrying out this on behalf of his people. This is your king, this is your Lord. Who has come off of his cosmic throne. taking the form of a servant. And who gives his life for you. That's why we stand in awe. That's why we look at the cross and we say. How can this be? What kind of a love is this? How great is this love. That I can't even fathom with my own mind. That the king of Glory. Would come and die for me. How can we fathom that? That's why it's not something to just be familiar with. Because no doubt we've heard it since we were children. Growing up with this understanding that Jesus died for sinners and all of this. And that is absolutely the essence of the gospel. But sometimes we can get too familiar with it. We get too familiar not recognizing that he's bearing the sins of his people. And it is the Lord. This is is the father who is crushing the son. This isn't Jesus paying a ransom to anybody else as what is thought sometimes today. People think that perhaps Jesus is paying a ransom to Satan for your souls or something, some kind of nonsense like that. Jesus is paying the ransom to his father. You are not being saved from Satan. You are being saved from the wrath of the father. That's what you're being saved and Christ himself, who is an intimate fellowship, intimate communion with the Father from all eternity, along with the Holy Spirit, at this moment endures something that he has never experienced in his entire existence, which has been from eternity to eternity, which is the wrath of his Father. It is for this reason that you can look back and see why he was sweating the great drops of blood in the garden, it wasn't because of the physical pain that he was going to endure because his physical pain in one sense was no different than any other man that had been crucified and been prepared to be crucified. That's why you don't look necessarily to what he endured as a, as a man by the hands of men because so many others had endured the same. Something was different with him and it was because the father poured out his wrath upon the son. The very thing you can't see. This is when the sky had grown dark and Jesus had cried out, You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is, this is Jesus acknowledging that something is happening here that ha- happened with other men. And actually, that Psalm 22 is what he's going to allude to further. Uh, that we'll get to next week. The prophecy here about his outer garments and casting lots for it is from Psalm 22. Even to the end when Jesus says it is finished. Psalm 22 ends with those praising the Lord because he had done it. And Jesus is bringing about all this even on the cross. But I want you to look at this too. Now, this particular inscription, not only is all this being brought out about the work of Christ who he is. What he is accomplishing. But there are other things looking, looking at this passage as well. Why was it that the chief priests had taken. Uh, some exception with what Pilate had written. This is the inscription that's being carried throughout the entire city. This is the charge. And the charge was not. That he was an insurrectionist. Like the Jews had told Pilate he was. This isn't one. One. An inscription that said he tried to overthrow the Roman, the Roman government here. This is an inscription by the sovereign hand of God that says. This is Jesus of Nazareth. The king of the Jews. He is the king of the Jews. Now as this is being paraded throughout the entire city. One it's giving the identity of who he truly is. That he is the king. Not only of the Jews but he is the king of all. And it also casts. Some some shadow on the religious leaders. Because the people. First off were hearing that he's an insurrectionist. And that's why he needs to be crucified. And all of a sudden when the charge comes out. It was just because he claimed to be the king of the Jews. So perhaps even seeing that the people would know. That the religious leaders were lying. That they were indeed dishonest. But they were right in the sense of what was written. That he was. The king of the Jews. And it was written. Not just in Hebrew. But it was written in Latin. It was written in Greek. And it's like why, why all three languages there? Well you think of the religion of Israel. Or the people of Israel. It's written in Hebrew. You think of Latin being uh, used a lot within Roman politics. But it was the language of the Romans. And then it's written in Greek. Greek. Koine Greek is the common language among everybody, and you have it all right there written as, the, as he's paraded through the city that everybody can read it and know exactly who this is. And then to be lifted up with this inscription upon him that everybody who looks and beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And understanding what that, that, that sign means, He is the Savior and the King. Of all who call upon him. That's why we get that under. This is one of those details that John puts in there. That it was written in three different languages. Because he is not only the God of the Jews. He's not only just their Messiah. But he is. He, he's for the nations. As in Psalm 2 says. As the father says to the son. Ask of me and I will give the nations as your inheritance. And this is the very thing that John has been giving us. Throughout the entirety of The gospel. I mean, if you just look at some of these passages, and you can jot these down, I'll try to go through them quickly. But in John chapter 1, he says in verse 9, There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. He was the true light, that coming into the world, who enlightens every man. In John chapter 3, beginning of verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. That is so amazing just to hear Jesus, uh, to read Jesus saying that. As Moses was lifted up in the serpent, or as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. And just as the Son of God is lifted up in the crucifixion and the inscription that is above him, that is in every language of the people themselves who are present there, that they can read it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. He says to the Samaritans in John chapter 4, we read this, verses 41 and 42. Many more believe because of his word and they were saying to one and they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and know this is the one indeed the savior of the world. What was it that John said back in John one? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus says in John chapter eight, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He says in chapter 11, actually, this was by the high priest. But here's what John adds to this. In John chapter 11, beginning of verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this. On his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not only for the nation, but in order that he might also gather together into one, the children of God who were scattered abroad. And then he says in chapter 12, verse 32. And I, even I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. So the things that John has been saying throughout the entirety of his gospel is all leading here. That is Christ himself is lifted up with the inscription above him that he is the king of the Jews. Written in three different languages that all the people could see and know. That that is an indication that he is indeed the savior of all men. All kinds of men. Not just one ethnicity or one nationality. He is the Savior of the Jews. He is the Savior of the Romans. He is the Savior of of the Greeks for all who call upon Him. He is yours for all of you who have called upon Him. And He makes no distinctions. He makes no distinctions about first class citizens or second class citizens or any of this. He is the Savior of all His people. And those whom he come to collect, that he come to die for. Also, we can look in this passage and we can see the fact that he is crucified with two other men who are thieves. You know, Jesus, during his ministry, always associated with those who were the sinners. I come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And he was all the time with the sinners, calling them to repentance and calling them to believe. And though it was probably part of his shame. And part of his humiliation. That he was crucified with these two thieves. But it also demonstrates to us. Whom he came to die for. Because the one particular thief. Though he was. Hurling insults. At Christ. At one point. He says this. In Luke chapter 23 verse 39. One of the criminals who were who were hanged there, was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, Today you shall be with me in paradise. He come to collect that man who is a thief. He come to collect all who are sinners that the father had given to him because he is bearing their punishment. He is the lamb who is taking their place. He is the one who is bearing their iniquities and bearing their shame. That's something else to look at as well. The fact of him being crucified. Often what they would do is not only take off the outer garment and the inner garment and the loin cloth itself. They would have them stripped naked. To further their humiliation and to further their shame. And Jesus bore the shame. Also on the cross. Which again takes us back to the very beginning as a result of the curse. The curse upon mankind. Adam and Eve when they were in the garden before they fell. They were naked and they were not ashamed. Until they fell. When they sinned. Then they're trying to grab leaves and trying to cover themselves. Because they understood that they were naked. And were ashamed. And Christ himself is the one who is bearing that shame of sin. On the cross. Bearing that shame and bearing that humiliation so that you and I don't have to. Donald Gray Barnhouse, he says this. There can be but just one method of salvation. And that is the method which God has devised in his infinite bounty of his being. And has brought to us by the goodness of his heart and the sacrifice that flows from his loving kindness. God says to the human race in some. I will not look at what you have been. It makes no difference how you may have sunken in sin. Or how you have walked according to your, your standards. I will not take account of the arrogance of your pride. Or the filth of your wallowing. I will not look at what you call iniquity. Nor will I look at what you call goodness. I will bring you all to the gate. And count you all as equal. I will ask you to admit That your gradations of human effort and human attainments must be discarded. And that you come, one and all, as bankrupts. Just admit that though you may have everything that satisfies your neighbors, you have nothing that satisfies me. Then says God, I will do everything for you and put righteousness to your account as a free gift without respect of persons. That's what he does. That's what he's doing. For this man who was at one moment earlier hurling insults with him along with his friend. But you notice something that John is really bringing to us as well. That is just so amazing to me. Is the essence of what salvation is. When you read in chapter 20 and we'll get to it eventually of course. Chapter 20 verses 30 and 31 This is really his whole purpose in everything. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And the thief on the cross is a prime example of this truth here. There was nothing that was required of this man. Except believe and on account of acknowledging who Christ was and the humility that he was showing even in the time of his the hour of his death remember me when you come into your kingdom that faith alone is what justified this man and that is exactly the essence of salvation the essence of saving faith is not doing anything but it is believing in him And that that thief is exactly the example of of how all of us may come into the presence of God. And when you look back over the gospel of John, there's nothing here that says you must do you must do, but rather believe, believe. And by believing, you may have life in his name. Believe in Him because everything that is needed is accomplished by Him. He's the Lamb. He's the one who satisfied the justice of God. He is the one who was our substitute. He is the one who who accomplished it all. He is the great King who accomplished this on behalf of His people. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah, who for the transgressions of His people was crushed by the Father. He is the one who was stripped naked of, of... All garments to endure the humiliation and the shame, so that his people would not have to. John Calvin says this Christ was stripped of his garments that he might clothe us with righteousness. His naked body was exposed to the insults of men that we may appear in glory before the judgment seat of God. He was stripped naked. So that his righteousness will be clothed over those that the Father gave to him. He is the Savior King who died on behalf of all his his people that God had given to him. And he is the Savior who requires nothing of you but believe. Just as the thief did. Believe. Believe. Everything's been done by him. The entirety of the gospel is him. Who he is. What he accomplished. He paid the debt. He satisfied your account with God. And he says to you and me. Come. Believe. And as a result of that saving faith. We are now counted as righteous in the sight of his father. Because of everything that he accomplished. There's nothing left that we can do. And it would be an insult for us to try. How can we compare with him? How can we compare with this offering that he is. That he is rendered to the father. He rendered himself as a guilt offering. How can we compete with that? Or we cannot. Anything that We have. Is never good enough. Any work that we do. Is never good enough. Any work that we do. Is never good enough. Any worship that we try to do. Is not good enough. In and of itself. Our dedication to him. Is not good enough. No matter how much we strive to do. In and of itself. It is never good enough. That's why he did all of that. Because it was good enough. It was all perfect. Again, his praying was perfect. His worship was perfect. His service was perfect. Everything he did was perfect. Because you and I can't. And now as a result of his perfection in all of those areas in which we fail so often... Our service is accepted by God. Our prayers are accepted by God. Our worship is accepted by God. Our dedication, our desires, our submission, everything is accepted by God on account of the Spirit of God who perfects it. It's an amazing thing to consider, the salvation of God's people and what has been benefited to them as a result of what He has accomplished here. These are things not to take advantage of, or not to, you know, Not to think so little of, to be so familiar with it that it doesn't affect us. These are things to marvel at. These are truths to behold. What God would do these things, but you. Thank you that I don't have to do anything in the sense of trying to work my way because you did it all. I can't do anything. That pleases God and of myself. But here's the beauty of it. Again. He did it all. And now. Because he did it all. And all of the things in which we fail. Are now perfected before the father. That means that you. Individually. Are perfected before the father. On account of the righteousness. Of his son. So that. When we come before the Father, we don't come before Him no longer as sinners in, 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 in view of their judge. But now we come as children of God before their Father. Who still have corruption in us, yes. Who still fail, yes. But everything we do is pointing back to Him, but He. And that's why I can come into the presence of God. That's why you can come into the presence of God. Believe, And that's all he desires of us. As far as anything to do. Believe. And all the benefits of his work. Are now applied to us. What a great God that we have. How magnificent. How glorious that he truly is. What a work that he has accomplished on behalf of his people. So then. Let us stand in awe. And let these truths be a means that promote in us a greater desire to do what is good and right. Not for salvation, but because of it. Our hearts indeed should be moved to honor the Lord with all that we can. We will continue next week finishing out the passage here of the crucifixion. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you. Once again, for what mercy and grace that we have received through your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we can not fathom what pain that he endured as you poured out your wrath upon him on account of our sin. But we recognize that he was the only one that could. The only one who was appointed by you to be the savior. Of his people. Our great king. He could endure your wrath. And he alone satisfied it. Thank you for his work. Thank you for his life. Thank you for his death. Thank you for his resurrection. Thank you for it all. Because without him. We would have no hope. Father be glorified. In your people. And may this particular passage. Be used by you. To cause a great change in us. To produce in us a greater desire for him. And a greater love for him. For all that he did. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for his work. To be the praise, the glory, and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.